Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The national abortion battle threatens the outlook for the National Defense Authorization Act as debt talks stall and members move to repeal the authorization of military force. And some criticize Ukraine aid as the administration promises further help for Kiev and imposes new and long overdue sanctions on Russia. German Chancellor Olaf Scholz arrives in Washington as Russia suffers a major tank battle defeat near Vuladar and Finland and Sweden awake Ankara and Budapest NATO membership blessing. The House China Select Committee held its first hearing as the White House considers F-16 fighters for Taiwan as it continues to decline sending jets to Ukraine. A new conventional arms transfer policy that weighs whether U.S. weapons will be used to violate human rights and the relationship of the buyer with nations like Russia and China. Iran nears nuclear breakout as tensions continue to rise in Israel. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are our roundtable, Dr. Patrick Cronin, who holds the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now with the Center for a New American Security and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, uh, one of the absolute best sources for, uh, trans, uh, uh, for information on the Transatlantic Alliance, and uh, former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Good morning, everybody, and great to have you all on. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. General Atomics and Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air combat coverage. Everybody, as I said, welcome uh, back. It wouldn't be Friday unless all of you were joining us. Uh, Michael, uh, start us off. Uh, latest on uh, debt st- uh, ceiling uh, spending, uh, you know, and and the continuing fallout from uh, DOD's uh, new uh, abortion policy. You know, however necessary it may be for uh, members in uniform, at the end of the day, it's become a political hot potato, and you identified it long before others did. Uh, discuss. Let's discuss where or tell us where uh, you think we are on all of this. Well, we're really nowhere still on the debt ceiling. There have been no additional meetings between uh, Speaker McCarthy and uh, President Biden. Uh, you know, Biden is talking about you know, raising taxes. He gave a speech the other day about a billionaire's tax, obviously knowing that that's not going to go anywhere. Uh, Democrats continue to criticize the extreme budget proposals of the Republicans, some of which we talked about uh, last week. Uh, I talked to some Republican House members about this um, earlier in the week, and one of them said, well, they're going to ask the Democrats what their ideas are uh, on uh, you know, reducing spending and dealing with the debt ceiling. And you know, that to me is almost kind of comical because the Democrats are in the minority and they didn't start this problem as far as raising the debt ceiling this year is concerned. And it's really more the Republicans' problem. So I don't think they're going to get much input from House Democrats. And Schumer's made it clear that they're not going to get input uh, from the Senate Democrats. Right. So the only shining light out there right now is that there is a bipartisan group of senators uh, led by Senator Angus King and Bill Cassidy that are looking at ways of reforming Social Security, Look at by, by raising the retirement age uh, to 70, you know, changing the existing formula that calculates monthly benefits, uh, creating some kind of sovereign wealth fund, 
Um, but I don't see that going anywhere this year. I think uh, Trump has put his people in a box. Uh, I think Biden has as well that we're not going to touch Medicare and Social Security. But I think it's a positive thing that we have a group of bipartisan senators beginning this discussion because it's something that's going to have to be done uh, in the coming years. Um, I, you know, the budget is still expected to come out March 9th. I don't think we'll see the justification books until about a week later. Uh, people do expect the defense budget to be higher than it was last year. I talked to some folks on the Hill yesterday but feel the increase will be somewhere around two and a half percent. And I think right now the feeling is uh, that's probably going to be the number. Uh, I, I don't think that's the end of the world if it is, but we still have a long way to go. Uh, and I think, you know, we'll talk about the China committee hearing later. I think that also may influence where we are in defense spending. Now, the abortion policy, as you mentioned, still continues to be a major problem. We talked about how the House reacted to it uh, last week. This week, uh, the all the senators, all the Republican senators on the House Armed Services Committee sent a scathing letter uh, to Lloyd Austin, really as a follow-up to a letter they sent back in July about this issue, where they asked the secretary for evidence to support the DOD's claim uh, that the Dobbs decision would have significant implications for the readiness of the force. And they asked the secretary to commit to consulting with the House and Senate committees on armed services before they issued any additional guidance. So this letter uh, you know, that they sent is scathing because it says they failed to answer the questions in the first letter. And they didn't, not only didn't they commit to consult with the committees on the department's uh, policy, but they went ahead and issued uh, and developed a new policy, which they say is significant and is a purely political action taken without consent of co without consulting Congress. So this continues to be a serious problem, continues to heat up. And now it's even having impact on the new location of the uh, Space Force headquarters. Because as you know, at the end of the Trump administration, they he said he was going to move uh, a Space Force headquarters from Colorado to uh, Alabama. And the Colorado folks feel that that's a very political play because you're moving it from a blue state uh, to a red state. But now that delegation is saying, well, hey, we shouldn't move it because of the access to abortion for our servicemen and women who will be stationed uh, at Space Force headquarters. So that needs to be remaining in um, in Colorado. You know, the Air, right. the Air Force was supposed to announce their decision at the end of last year, but they still continue to push that off. And lastly, as a result of this abortion policy, now um, Senator Tupperville from Alabama said he's going to put uh, uh, he's going to try and delay uh, all confirmations uh, to the DOD for Biden, as well as promotions of general officers uh, because of this policy. So it, it continues to uh, be more be a mess. I'm uh, I'm glad to see that the nation remains as strategic as ever uh, in uh, such uh, important matters, uh, ultimately. Um, speaking about strategic, uh, let's talk a little bit about repealing the authorization of military force. This has really been going on forever, uh, and we keep talking about it. What's wh Why is this day different from all others, Michael? <laughs> well, because I think this, this, we've been talking for a while about scrapping the 1991 and 2002 authorizations for use of military force against Iraq. I think this is the year it's really going to happen. Uh, there's clearly enough votes in the Senate to overcome a filibuster. Uh, it's a bipartisan effort led by Senator Tim Kaine and, and Todd Young. Uh, th there could be a markup on this as soon as next week. Now, there, there's still going to be some Republican um, opposition to it, especially marking up next week without a hearing. Uh, but I do think that it's, it is going to go forward. Uh, actually, Schumer now is committed uh, to getting this on the floor, but I think he's going to the timing is probably going to coincide, coincide with the 20th anniversary of the invasion of Iraq, uh, George W. Bush's invasion of Iraq in, in, in 2003. So we're going to try to get some score some political points on this. Um, but, you know, we've talked, you asked a good question last uh, last time we talked about this, about whether this really means anything or symbolic. And I think in the end, it is symbolic. You know, if the president sees threats uh, to American forces, including Iranian proxies, 
he can strike against them. I mean, Res President Reagan struck Libya without an authorization of use of military force. Uh, he went into Grenada without one. Uh, George H.W. Uh, Bush went into Panama without one. I'm not really that concerned about it. I don't think the House will take it up right away. I think the House will delay action on repeal of the AUMF and try and roll it into the National Defense Authorization Act. But again, I think that has strong bipartisan support and it has support from different factions within the Republican Party, both on the, the moderate wing as well as the very conservative wing. So I think that this will probably be the year where it happens. Um, but let's uh, go uh, to uh, discussion of the war and, and where we are now that the conflict in, is in its uh, second uh, year, a lot of activity. Russia lost a major uh, tank battle as Janet Yellen uh, visited Kiev, announcing new sanctions on Moscow, including uh, aluminum uh, tariffs, which were uh, well overdue uh, at the G20. Um, Antony Blinken confronted Sergei Lavrov, right, called on him to end the war, said America would continue support, uh, urged uh, uh, Russia to come back to a new start. Uh, there's not really going to be an answer to that. I think we know what the answer to that is, is going to be. Um, and then as all of this was happening, there was an extraordinary hearing in Washington that created a lot of doubt about the future of America's uh, support for uh, Ukraine. GOP members pounding uh, the administration um, and, and I think it's less about the aid and, and that somehow, you know, we're, we're hurting Russia seemed to be the message that I pulled away from that. What does this mean and the timing of it? Um, because, you know, Russia's calculation in this is just wait, be patient. Time is on our side. The Americans will undo this for us. The Rush, the Germans will lose patience. Uh, Jim, I'm going to come to you next for kind of the the, the broader strategic uh, strategic view. I mean, I should also point out, right, in Belarus, you know, the man who won the, the Nobel Prize in October, Alex Bialyatsky, uh, you know, has has been sentenced uh, to prison, uh, suggesting, you know, that that might not have been a decision uh, that Minsk came up on its own, right? Uh, you know, an indication as 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 uh, Belarus and and Russia draw further closer and that, uh, you know, that Belarus could be uh, a springboard for another front. Anyway, but walk us through what this hearing meant and what does it uh, suggest uh, to you about the future of U.S. support uh, for Ukraine or congressional support for Ukraine? Uh, so, look, I would not read too much into this hearing. Uh, look, and I agree with you. This is this is painful. But this this view is still a minority view within the Republican Party. You know, and there's, this, there's still that section of the party that, you know, continues to show they're not serious about governing. I mean, just as a side note, for example, you know, the Texas Republican Party is going to censure one of their members today, Tony Gonzalez, who's on the Appropriations Committee, uh, because of his support for gay marriage and the gun control package last week. So these people just really still aren't serious. It's still a minority view. Um, I think that, again, this is part of them also Republicans keeping their promise to, sh to show more accountability. They asked some tough questions, you know, to Colin Cowell, um, and he made it very clear that the weapons that are being sent over to Ukraine are not being smuggled into the black market and are being used for their intended purpose. And I think most people accept that. And at the same time, we see a bipartisan group of Republicans uh, continue to push the F-16 sale to Ukraine. Uh, there's a letter circulating and the number of signatures on the letter uh, continues to grow uh, by the week. Um, but, you know, I think while the bipartisan coalition in Congress for Ukraine remains strong, there are some problems that polls are showing. There's growing uh, fatigue among taxpayers about shipping tens of billions of dollars uh, overseas. And there's a lot of frustration on and off the hill that Biden has not done enough to shore up this effort. It's something we've talked about over and over again on previous podcasts. I think the president, again, missed an opportunity at the last day of the union address to explain why this is important to us. And when we talk about the China hearing, I think 
Mike Gallagher actually did a very good uh, job of doing that where the president has not. Uh, there was a recent poll by the Pew Research Center, which is circulating on Capitol Hill, that shows that public support for Ukraine has fallen from 60% in May to 48% now. Uh, and the share of Americans who think the United States has given too much to Ukraine was 7% then, and now it's 26%. Uh, so it's something we need to be concerned about. I mean, the upside is that Biden's numbers, uh, his approval rating as far as his handling of the war, uh, are now up to 48% approval, uh, and it was 40% in March. Now, um, apparently, uh, Zelensky is trying to get a phone call scheduled with Speaker McCarthy uh, to talk about this because they continue to be rattled by McCarthy's comments that he's not going to continue to give a blank check to Ukraine. I, again, I think people are reading too much into that. McCarthy is still a supporter of our efforts in Ukraine. And again, the divide becomes between the military aid and the non-military aid. And McCarthy has to say a lot of things and he has to craft his words carefully because he has to placate uh, his right wing side. But I, I just don't think Zelensky is getting good advice here because I don't think a, a call with McCarthy helps his case. It, it actually puts more spotlight on McCarthy to be tougher on Zelensky than he really wants to be or needs to be right now. But I'd say right now, in the short run, I think we're in a good spot, but uh, I think that the president needs to do more to explain why this is important to Americans. He should take a, a page out of Mike Gallagher's playbook. Um, Jim, uh, talk to us more broadly, right? Yellen's sanctions, Schultz uh, visiting the U.S., uh, his team making it clear this is nothing about end games or, or backing away, that this is uh, a, a working uh, visit. We have a growing likelihood that Helsinki will end up uh, entering NATO uh, without Sweden uh, um, or, or ideally first, uh, even though the two had pledged to do this uh, together because it looks like Ankara and, and Budapest are both going to bless one and, and, and not uh, the other. Um, is the alliance's willingness to win this war wavering just weeks after everybody pledged un unyielding, unending support for the war? Well, well let me jump in uh, first and, and just make a comment about what Michael said. And I agree with Michael 100 percent. And I, I just I would add to what Michael said that um, what's going to be important, I think, is the battlefield situation over the next six to eight months in terms of of dealing with whether it's fatigue, uh, he, as Michael mentioned, the polls showing kind of a growing fatigue or a, uh, and, and in Europe as well, if there, if, if on the battlefield, uh, we do get into a stalemate situation, if there is not something that shows a Ukraine, you know, continuing to make progress, particularly if they can pull off something like they did last summer, and that, that may not be possible now, given all the reinforcements that have come in to the Russian side, but but I think a lot of fatigue is really uh, not seeing progress. You know, hearing on the radio as they're driving somewhere, the American people hear that there's another package uh, that's going to be going to Ukraine. And it's not coupled with uh, headlines about advancement on the battlefield by Ukraine. Uh, and so I think there's a there's an impatience, you know, that Americans tend to have, like everybody has. Uh, and, uh, you know, having a drumbeat of assistance packages being announced without accompanying progress, uh, people begin to, qu to question why are we doing this, et cetera, et cetera. And that's really unfortunate because, uh, you know, my God, a war, it, it, it takes a long time uh, and you got to have patience. And that's where the political uh, leadership comes in. And I was just thinking as Michael was talking that Franklin Roosevelt had a similar problem as Lincoln did, we've talked about, and I, I don't want to go and bring too much history into this, but it seems on the political side and, and both with uh, Lincoln and also with Franklin Roosevelt, that they really did depend on battlefield advancements uh, in parts of their political careers to, to happen. Uh, Churchill, too. 
to, to keep them in power, but also to keep the people uh, uh, positive and moving forward. And I think we're going to be in a similar situation. Uh, and it's going to be a lot riding on Ukraine doing, doing well. Um, let me pause there and uh, see what you think. And then I'll, I'll talk about Finland, Sweden. Well, uh, take us uh, take us to Finland, Sweden, and how this uh, fits into it, right? Because I want to have uh, get uh, Dove sense uh, next on it, and then Patrick on how, uh, right? I mean, China is very astute in what it lessons it's drawing before we get to the China hearing part of it, because it was a very important. Uh, I thought it was it was it was a great inaugural meeting, and wish more people had seen it. But anyway, walk us through how you think um, the the entire Finland Sweden issue works itself out as, as Finland, right, bolsters its border uh, with with Russia, again, I mean, in the expectation that it's going to make it into NATO before Sweden will. Well, just to say that so much, I think, is going to depend on um, whether Erdogan is going to <clears throat> have his election in May or if he's going to push it push it back a bit because of the political situation he's in based on that er- the earthquake. And I haven't heard anything recently, but I'd heard that that was some of the concerns right now was that uh, uh, there is a possibility and an authority for uh, Erdogan to move the election a little bit. And if and so there's a lot of thinking about how that will play with the Vilnius summit, because there was feeling that you'd have the Turkish elections uh, and then um, and then a, a lift by by Erdogan after that, <laughs> assuming he's elected, uh, he that would be lifted and then uh, and then they would have at the Vilnius summit, Sweden, Finland coming in. But if this election's getting moving closer uh, to the Vilnius time, uh, I, I just don't know how the timing's gonna impact. And so as we have these kinds of situations happen with Turkey, it, it kind of increases the volume on, well, maybe Finland should go in earlier. And uh, that was raised as a trial balloon earlier, um, I guess a month or so ago. And it's kind of got mixed, uh, a mixed uh, reception, uh, not just in Sweden but also across the alliance. Whether that's 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 whether we should have let, you know let that happen, um, in the sense that uh, I think Sweden and Finland coming in together makes the most sense and feels right among not just Sweden and Finland but also among the alliance too. Separating Finland out, you know, having uh, Sweden ex- exposed and by itself facing Turkey. You know that doesn't feel good either, and that doesn't feel good in Helsinki. But I I picked up that there seems to be a, a uh, while reluctant, there seems to be more of an, a feeling that that could be the case that Finland could come in uh, a little bit earlier. And again, depends on whether Erdogan would lift on just Turkey, uh, and also there's the Hungarian question. But I think I think Hungary is 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 ready to go. I personally feel they're they're kind of waiting on Turkey, but I know that Dove has another view as, as well. So, so I, you know, so we're still in this holding pattern. Everybody hoping something happens to kind of give progress one way or another. So we, we see what's going to happen. But until that happens, we're kind of floating around right now, uh, seeing what Erdogan is going to do uh, and um, and how that impacts in Helsinki and and within the and within the alliance. Um, uh, Dove, uh, let me uh, bring you uh, into this uh, and where where we are. Uh, and where we're going, uh, right? I mean, because there is this sense uh, that uh, you know that the you know that the that Hungary and Turkey were looking at each other to do each other's dirty work for them. Uh, we may have uh, passed uh, that point, um, you know. And and 
you know, I mean, my, my, if there were legitimate complaints by lawmakers about how aid is being spent, you had to field those questions when you were comptroller, whether about Afghanistan or Iraq. Uh, but there were legitimate questions, and then there are maybe less legitimate questions. It's less about the aid going to Ukraine, that it's going to Ukraine, or how it's being spent, but that it's going to Ukraine at all uh, for some of these uh, members. Walk us through all of these uh, elements. Okay, well, first, uh, Mike said that uh, it looks like the budget will go up about two and a half percent. What that means, of course, given that inflation is higher than that and inflation in defense is even higher than CPI inflation, uh, that means there's no real growth. That means there's a real decline, which would be an awful, awful, awful signal to uh, our allies and particularly the Germans. Uh, as well as a bad signal to Mr. Putin and Mr. Xi. So the real question is, is there going to be real growth? Uh, and, you know, if they say, well, it's two and a half percent over last year. OK, but that's still not real growth, given that that's where last year was. So that's something that uh, we need to watch carefully and, and certainly will discuss on the uh, matter of uh, uh, Americans losing interest. One of the concerns I've got, and I think you heard of this from uh, some of the others, is that the Biden administration is not making one very important point, which is if Putin wins and attacks a NATO country, we're at war and it's going to cost a hell of a lot more than anything we're giving Ukraine. Uh, I was asked this by a, a very well-informed person, you know, why do we keep sending the money? And when I just gave that answer, he said, oh, of course, I never thought of that. Uh, Americans have not thought of that. And, it, and it's very important that they do. On uh, uh, Hungary and Finland, um, the, the case, the Hungarians, when I was over in Hungary a few months back, they were saying at the latest, it'll go to the parliament in February. Well, it, it went in the beginning of March, but it's in front of the parliament now. Orban personally the, has said that, that he doesn't oppose them going in. Sweden and Finland, that is. So I think that'll happen. And that could put some pressure on Erdogan, no matter when he moves the election. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, Erdogan is is not an easy guy to pin down. And even if uh, the Hungarians vote Finland and Sweden in, uh, that doesn't mean he'll do anything. The Finns themselves were saying all that rather recently, that there was no plan B that uh, for going in alone. The tone has changed. Finns that I have spoken to now are not ruling that out. They're sort of saying kind of like what uh, Stoltenberg said, which is, well, OK, Finland comes in and Sweden comes in a little later. Uh, so uh, that one can't be entirely ruled out anymore, um, simply because uh, the Finns, uh, the ones who've spoken to me say, look, we're so tightly enmeshed with Sweden anyway that if we come in, it may not make as big a difference uh, as some people think. Now, I think that's just uh, a way of saying we're preparing to, uh, possibly to come in on our own uh, initially. But nevertheless, it, it does appear that they haven't ruled it out anymore. And, and that's a change. Patrick, uh, let me bring you into the discussion. Uh, you've been very patient. Uh, walk us through how China is looking uh, at all of this, uh, right? Uh, and uh, before we move uh, to the discussion, and maybe you can start us off on, on your uh, sense uh, on the hearing, and, and certainly we'll then go to Michael to get his, sort of like what, what lawmakers uh, were doing. But give us this the, the sense on how China is, is seeing 
all of this, because one of the reasons we're doing all of this is to deter China, deter China from miscalculating uh, ultimately in the signals uh, that we send. Um, and I think that in, by and large, the signals have been pretty good signals, even though I don't think we've been as tough or fast moving as we need to be. What are the signals as far as you're concerned? Well, indeed, I hosted uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense Eli Ratner yesterday at the Hudson Institute, and he made it very clear that uh, deterrence is strong, deterrence is real. And he was talking about uh, Taiwan, he was talking about uh, North Korea, uh, the, the two major flashpoints in Asia. Um, I think um, the first thing that the Chinese notice is the unity among allies, including the fact that this war in Ukraine has brought together America's European and Asian allies in a way that we haven't seen uh, in other, you know, in recent times. Um, and just to footstop Dub's excellent point, you know, that Americans need to be far-sighted about this, is that the strategic consequences of letting Putin win this war, win the war of aggression, uh, far surpasses the financial cost to us. Um, and our Asian allies understand that. Um, so that's the first thing the Chinese notice too. And they're trying to do their utmost to break it. Interesting test we just saw this week in New Delhi. This was on the margins of the G20 or at the G20 foreign ministers meeting in the first place, where you had uh, Lavrov uh, in, you know, backed by the Chinese stop a consensus document, a communique condemning the war. Um, interestingly, though, going back to this ongoing discussion we're having about what about those in the middle, in the global south, um, you know, Indonesia, India, Saudi Arabia, South Africa, they voted for they were part of the 18 to two, wanting uh, the condemnation of the war. Um, so that's at least worth noting that when it's easy for them to do so, they know what's right and wrong here. Um, China's trying to divide the world on this and they're having trouble. So just as Wang Yi misread the room in, in Munich, you know, they've they misread the room, I think in New Delhi as well. Um, I think China's on the military side of this war, they're very hard headed though. They haven't made a final decision about which way this war is going. I think they're keeping their options open. But they recognize that the blitzkrieg that Putin promised failed, but that a war of attrition is something that Putin is showing he has the determination to win, the tenacity to win, and, and he's calling into question the political will of the West and of the world. Um, and there the Chinese are interested in, can their assistance make the difference of winning a war of attrition? And that's why this question of how far will they tilt toward arms sales on top of economic and technological assistance to Russia. And that's an open question at this point. But aren't they, uh, Patrick, right? I mean, how do you respond to those who say that the Chinese are actually doing an extraordinary amount to help the Russians through third-party arms transfers and the like, right? That, that ultimately, whether it's Chinese electronics or Chinese capabilities or Chinese software or even Chinese weapons, are making it to the Russians just through other folks. No, I'm not disagreeing with that. I mean, I, I think the economic assistance is propping up the war economy of Russia. I, I was really pointing to this current debate about whether they're going to provide more direct lethal arms directly to Russia's war effort. And so inviting Lukashenko to Beijing and having him possibly be one of the uh, contributors of, of weapons from China, uh, that's a real possibility. Um, they, may, they may elevate the level of direct military assistance to Russia. That's the open question. There's no doubt that China is supporting and propping up the Russia economy and therefore the war effort. Uh, and they're definitely supporting and showing a united front politically and diplomatically as they just did in New Delhi. Um, but at the same time, China wants to keep some distance from this war, even, even though they, they don't want Putin to lose it. 
they think maybe their help can win this war of attrition um, at an acceptable cost, but they are more, more focused still on uh, what the implications are for whether they can invade Taiwan. And we saw uh, the director of the CIA this week say that Xi Jinping has real doubts whether he has the ability with the PLA to invade Taiwan. So his focus is more locally uh, oriented toward core goals in Asia. Let me uh, just uh, a brief word to our audience to check out our weekly podcast, Cavus Chips, hosted uh, by uh, Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our new air power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace with JJ Gertler and me. Michael, uh, very quickly, uh, China hearing, does it really move the needle right? Extraordinarily bipartisan. Uh, on the part of Wisconsin Republican Mike Gallagher and uh, Illinois Democrat Raja Krishnamurthy, uh, very comprehensive, uh, thoughtful uh, folks, uh, even though there was uh, a sense that it was a little bit Trump heavy uh, on the team with H.R. McMaster and Matt Pottinger, even though they both did, I think, an absolutely terrific job, as comprehensive as you could want a hearing uh, to sort of frame the nature of the challenge from the uh, 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 Chinese Communist Party. Enough to sort of move a needle because you hinted, uh, several of you have hinted that it could could move a needle just really quickly before we go to Patrick uh, and then get Dove uh, and and Jim's uh, uh, take uh, as well. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I do. And remember, this is the first of many hearings uh, yet to come, right? I mean, this one really focused on military and economic challenges posed by China as well as you know, the human, human rights abuses. Um, and, you know, again, I think Mike Gallagher did a very good job of looping in uh, the global threat we face from China that, and its link uh, to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You know, I mean, he did say, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the threat posed by China are inextricable. You can't isolate and separate them from each other. And, you know, it has, he's learning. I think the committee's going to learn, I think, and they're going to educate the American public. I mean, uh, when I talk about defense spending, I mean, he said we need to completely rebuild the arsenal of democracy and replenish our stockpiles. Said the war in Ukraine has exposed the fragility of our defense industrial base and our munitions industries. So, uh, and and again, he said, you know, you can you can make the argument to the people that by supporting the effort in Ukraine, you're bolstering deterrence across the Taiwan Strait and preventing World War III. I think those are very powerful. I think a lot of the witnesses, you know, backed that up. I mean, H.R. McMaster uh, warned that the U.S. was underinvested in military modernization, and uh, you mentioned, you know, Matthew Pottinger. You know, talked about the massive investment that China is making in their military to counter our abilities. So I think that you know it's it's slow and steady, but I think that this will resonate. I think a lot of the folks asked really good questions. I was really struck by the questions asked by Congressman Andy Kim, a Democrat from New Jersey. Uh, he's right. got you know credible national security background, and people were actually texting me during the hearing, uh, complimenting Andy Kim's questions because um, again he said some of the things that I've said too in the past about things that we do that actually enable China. And he did mention a, a point, which I think scored political points as well, that you know, uh, if we don't raise the debt ceiling and threaten to crash our own economy, aren't we helping the Chinese? And he was correct. I think Matthew Pottinger tried and dodge the answer to that question. That, that is uh, correct. <laughs> Matt, yes. Matt did try to dodge the, that question. Yeah, and, and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with him saying, yes, you're right. You know, If we crash our own economy, we are helping the Chinese. Uh, and I think Andy Kim was also very smart to talk about how we involve our allies and partners uh, in this uh, long-term fight against China, because they're threatened just as much as we are. I, I think I should point out, I, as much as I love the arsenal of democracy, I think we need arsenals of democracies, and we've mm -hmm. got to figure out how to do this together, because I don't think there's any way that we do it uh, on our own, unless we bring really all of this capability on our side and do it in a distributed fashion so that everybody's got a little bit of skin in the game. Uh, it's important. I, I also believe we need to do a CHIPS Act 
um, for national in defense industrial capability, whether it's on the shipyard side of, you know, people have a tendency of thinking about each one of these pieces in isolation. We don't have an aircraft surge production capability. We don't have a shipyard surge uh, capability. Uh, and indeed, I think HR rightly said, we, we don't have capacity, right? I mean, we've been making everything more exquisite and leaner as opposed to actually having the capacity uh, more, more, more broadly uh, based. Patrick, uh, your uh, sense on what were the key elements of this hearing and how you think uh, it changes uh, the debate. Uh, and and uh, Dove, I, uh, you know, would, would like to get your sense as well. And then Jim, uh, your, yours also, and, and then uh, move to a couple of other questions that I'd like us to tackle as well in, in the time uh, we've got. Go ahead. Go ahead, Patrick. Well, it was a three-hour uh, initial hearing, and I think it successfully got the process started. It shows the gravity of the problem, first and foremost. I mean, right out the bat, Chairman Gallagher saying, look, strategic competition is not a tennis match. I thought he was um, channeling Mao uh, talking about revolution is not a dinner party. This is a very serious, grave challenge we face. And this was repeated by other members who were testifying uh, at that hearing. I think the bipartisan consensus is also just so obvious. And it's just commendable of how Chairman Gallagher is handling this, uh, I think, uh, with the ranking member. Um, uh, and really showing that this is going to be bipartisan through and through. And I think that's important. If he holds to that, it's going to be much more potent. They obviously didn't have the ratings for this initial hearing that they deserve. I think that's going to grow over time as they get more and more focus. I thought all four of the uh, people who testified were uh, added added real value to our understanding of the issue. Um, and um, in many ways, uh, you know, the, the best scene early on was the Code Pink woman being you know, uh, walked out of the uh, the, the hearing room um, saying cooperation, not competition. And I'm thinking, well, talking about misreading the room. I mean, no, right. every, everybody knows we need to compete with China. Um, and, you know, she should have been uh, protesting Russia's invasion of Ukraine or something useful. Um, I think the um, well, the big uh, the big difference was she could do that and she can't do that in either Russia or China. Right. Yeah, precisely. And, and Scott Ross made an excellent point on that. I, and he made some very good points about manufacturing and you're mentioning the defense industrial base. I think there's there's a lot of scope for good things that can be uh, highlighted here. And I think the, the, when I read the criticism of this, especially in Asia and especially by the Chinese, it's China bashing. Uh, it's, you know, simply trying to decouple instantly everything, every, you know, from the world. Um, you know, those are exaggerations of what this is about and misreading what we're trying to do here. And I think uh, going forward, we just need to be mindful that we're uh, mixing solutions in with the clear-eyed view of the problem. Dove, uh, your your takeaways from from your perspective. I mean, right. I mean, one of the frustrating elements of it, unfortunately, was it was very hard to find. Even those of us who wanted to see it uh, had uh, challenges finding it. We were all texting one another about, hey, what's the right link? Where do we find it? So, you know, uh, Michael, uh, kudos to you, right? I mean, Patrick, you heard it on the radio. Uh, C-SPAN 2 ended up carrying it, even though it's normally, uh, you know, devoted to the Senate. Uh, and and uh, Mike Gallagher's office was good enough to share the link. Uh, and that proliferated enough where I think, you know, if people were, were really interested, but you had to be dedicated. So hopefully lesson learned is, is how to do uh, better at, uh, at getting it out. But what were some of the things that jumped out for you? And then, and then Jim, your take as well. Well, one thing, of course, is that uh, Mike Gallagher uh, isn't uh, just fixated on China uh, in the way some other people are in, 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 in this town. And the, the, the fact is that what was being said about China, uh, and we've said this on this uh, 
podcast today, it reflects also how you think about Ukraine. Uh, and one of the things that I think comes out of all of this is you cannot assume that uh, the Chinese will sit tight while this war continues or that if China were to try something against Taiwan, Putin wouldn't try to exploit that in some other way or North Korea might or Iran might. And uh, I think the importance of what Gallagher is doing is essentially making national security something that uh, we talked earlier about how people may not be following things too closely and then thinking we're spending too much money on all this, uh, on Ukraine, on defense and so on. And I think as he has more of these hearings, this is going to get into the public consciousness. And more than any specific detail, the ability to get the country to think seriously about all of this, I think is, is absolutely critical. Uh, and and uh, he needs to be commended for that. The hearing also got me thinking, and it'll, it, it just appeared in the, in the Hill, that one of our biggest problems in, in managing with the Chinese is our hidebound acquisition system. And uh, uh, Ken Calvert, who now chairs the Appropriations uh, Defense Subcommittee in the House, has been arguing for years, and maybe now he'll be able to do it, uh, to we need to cut back on some of the uh, personnel that are simply adding layers and layers of bureaucracy and making it much more difficult to exploit the commercial sector, uh, to uh, move things quickly through what's called the valley of death. And I think that, again, what Gallagher has done is essentially open up a lot of these issues for uh, public scrutiny. One other thing we've, uh, Patrick, of course, mentioned uh, the China-Russia nexus. Russia has been very careful about how much of its submarine quieting technology it's passed on to the Chinese, to the point where the Chinese have been trying to steal it, um, with what measure of success is not clear. But it seems to me that as Russia becomes increasingly dependent on China, not just economically, but perhaps for uh, military equipment as well, they're going to have to open up their kimono. And given that uh, it's been widely reported uh, that Chinese uh, submarines are far noisier um, than anything Russia produces and certainly than anything we produce, uh, that could further complicate our ability to, to deal with the Chinese if we had to go head to head with them. I mean, there are a lot of reasons why the two uh, are not as close, even if it, it, they are being conveniently so uh, at uh, the moment. Jim? Kind of your 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 sense on the China hearing and how and whether it will have an effect on our European allies and partners whose perception of China and Russia are dramatically changing. And I'm going to let you have uh, another uh, bite at uh, the apple in just a moment, because I want to get your take on the conventional arms transfer policy and a quick five minute warning, uh, which is roughly about the time we've got left uh, in the in the in the in the program. Uh, go ahead. Well, uh, just quickly, I'm, I'm wondering if that's the uh, hearings will have an impact on how the uh, DOD planners are looking at China and Russia, this getting off of this idea of a pacing threat uh, and an acute threat. And, you know, I, I, that's a bit simplistic, honestly. And I think, I think we've said on this podcast just recently uh, that, that we've got to look at these things together. And I'm sure they, they must be doing that in the Pentagon. I would hope that in fact they do. But I remember in 2014 and uh, when I was there as the DASD for Europe NATO, 
uh, after they took Ukraine, uh, those same people who are at, in higher jobs today, but back then, those same people who were doing strategy and this type of thing, they just refused to look on Russia as the threat that we all knew it was. Uh, it was all about China. Uh, Russia was a second tier, and they were going to have to go through this big process uh, to pump it up to the first tier back in 2014. And so it's, it's, it's really frustrating. And I think I'm hoping that these uh, hearings will begin to, to, to show that we've got one large problem taking place on two parts of, this, of, the, of the globe. Uh, and we have to work at them together and not make one uh, a pacing threat and the other an acute threat. That just doesn't play anymore to, to my mind. And I think in terms of the allies, those that are listening to the hearings, I'm not sure how many really are. I, um, it, it might help, uh, you know, within some capitals, with some politicians, some strategists as they listen to us talk about China. But overall, I just, I don't think that's where Europe is for different reasons. Uh, I don't think they're going, their needles and their various capitals are gonna move too much based on this, uh, based on these hearings, frankly. Um, does does the um, conventional right? I mean, the administration put out its new conventional arms transfer policy, uh, Jim. Um, right. I mean, it was it basically codified the administration's de facto strategy, elements of which date from the Obama years, some of the elements that date from the Trump years. Uh, right. I mean, human rights uh, very much at the center. We are not likely, you know, if there is uh, more likely than not that you would use these weapons uh, both externally or domestically. Uh, American weapons uh, to uh, impinge on people's human rights, there will be a, uh, likely a denial. But equally important is if you are doing business with China and Russia, whether you're helping violate sanctions to help either one of them uh, or buying their equipment, uh, India, right? I mean, Canada is the one exception where there's, there's no exception at all, right? There's a presumption of approval. In India, it's the world's largest country. So there's a sense that they continue to buy arms from, from Russia. Uh, but whereas everybody else, it, it's problematic. What what is what impact is this going to have? Because there are a lot of folks who are looking at this and saying, okay, well, Saudi Arabia might be joining, you, you know, the British Tempest, British-led Tempest program, uh, for for example. How how is this cat policy right? I mean, is it going to work the way the administration thinks, or is it something that could actually alienate allies and partners ultimately and backfire on us? Well, I, I, I'm constraining myself right now from laughing at this only because it goes back to Jimmy Carter. <laughs> it goes back to the to uh, the late 70s where we first, you know, the, the administration first put in that the big uh, uh, concerns and regulations about human rights, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. And I, I laugh because I joined the Defense Security Assistance Agency, as it was called then, uh, just a few years after that cat policy came in and watched everyone try to deal with it uh, because it just makes things more complicated because there's always a cutout for what well, these guys are okay or you know, or something happens and, and, and a human rights violator suddenly becomes our best friend because we're now having to do some, you know, some fighting in that area. We need to send security assistance in there. You know, it's, it's, I, it's, it's you know, a wonderful aspiration. I, I'm a human rights supporter. You know, I mean, I understand what they're trying to do. I don't, the progressives, you know, this is something they've always uh, pounded the drum about. And I, okay, got that. And I'm, I'm, I'm wonderful. But at the end of the day, it doesn't work very well uh, at all. It ends up complicating things. And usually it's the, the little guy uh, who, 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 who runs afoul of it. In other words, the big human rights 
uh, abusers and, and the big targets for something like this usually get a cutout or there's something that makes them special for a particular system or whatever. So at the end of the day, I just, uh, you know, I, it's shades of Jimmy Carter, who I really like too as a president, uh, but I don't see this doing anything but making things much more complicated in a system that's already complicated. Patrick, uh, really quickly before we do, go to Dove for uh, Iran uh, and Israel, right? I mean, the you know Netanyahu's uh, you know t- t- time bomb uh, prop now becomes uh, a little bit more prominent when it's not a twelve month breakout but a twelve day breakout. Um, administration talking about shipping F sixteens to Taiwan, um, something that folks have long argued is uh, is important to improve the island's defenses. Again, you know, H R McMaster noting that nineteen billion in arms have been approved for Taiwan, but some of it is not getting there, and indeed. We are pulling from our stocks globally uh, to send to Ukraine, whether it's from the Asia Pacific as well, right? I mean, I should note th- this is this hardware is not just coming out of the United States or European stockpiles. We, we are turning over every stone in the Asia Pacific to do this as well, which is why it's problematic in the eyes of some. Walk us through the F-16 line. What does it mean? How China responds to it, right? Because there was always a a visceral and over-the-top reaction, right? Going back to, you know, when the Obama administration cleared F-16s, F-16 upgrades, and, you know, there was was a ballistic response from Beijing. Yeah, well, China showed their reaction by uh, having two days of flying through the air defense identification zone of Taiwan with more than uh, 20 jet aircraft, um, fighter planes. I, you know, China wants to stop all arms sales to Taiwan. They want to make sure that Taiwan cannot resist an invasion if that's what it comes to, uh, and therefore buy time for the Americans to come to the aid because they know Taiwan can't defend themselves against the mainland on their own. So the whole strategy is to harden uh, Taiwan like a porcupine. That's a right. lot of other systems beyond F-16s, but F-16s are part of that mix, a very important part of the mix of the air battle. Um, and uh, it, right now, one of the challenges is just training pilots and, and, and stepping up the game for training Taiwan's pilots as they get these F-16s. Um, and the $619 million just approved uh, this week, uh, authorized for the F-16 sales and other arms, uh, is again another uh, show of we recognize the urgency uh, as a country that Taiwan needs more self-defense arms now, because if there is any tension that suddenly escalates, that's it. You will not be able to bring those arms in easily. Um, and we're going to have to be figuring out how we, uh, you know, why deterrence failed. Uh, Dove, uh, bring us home. Um, Iran, what it means, what's next, what do we have to do, if anything? Uh, and uh, the situation in Israel, which uh, is getting graver, not just because Netanyahu is pressing ahead, obviously, in, in this controversial uh, judicial uh, uh, changes, but also the increasingly dire situation um, on the West Bank uh, and elsewhere uh, in the country uh, as, as tensions are flaring, right? Uh, an American, uh, you know, killed uh, this week uh, in exchanges between Palestinians and Israelis. Uh, look, with respect to Iran, uh, they're getting awfully close to 90 percent enrichment, which would allow them to build a bomb. Uh, they're over 80 percent now. So uh, the the announcement that we made that they're within days or a couple of weeks of having a bomb kind of uh, underscores what Netanyahu has been saying uh, for some time. Uh, but you know what? I mean, as long as there's no JCPOA and there isn't an Iran nuclear deal, um, why is everybody surprised? 
Uh, and frankly, the issue remains not so much whether they can uh, build a bomb, but how they deliver it and what else they could use with do with their missile systems. And the Iran nuclear deal never focused on missile systems. The, uh, the deal is, is frozen. Nothing's going to happen there, but nothing's going to happen either with missile systems. So that's really the cause of instability. Um, Netanyahu uh, hasn't been invited yet to the White House. Uh, relations are really very bad between the United States and Israel. Uh, uh, a minister in the Israeli government said uh, that the American ambassador should, uh, Tom Nides, should keep his nose out of uh, what's going on with the Supreme Court. Uh, Nides came back and said, don't tell me it's not our business. It is our business. Um, those kinds of exchanges haven't been around for some time. Uh, and, and frankly, turning to Israel, you've got a number of problems. Uh, Two Israelis were killed in a town called Hara. Um, then the, then uh, the West Banker uh, extremists went and essentially started burning out houses and, and buildings and cars. And uh, one Palestinian was killed. And uh, the Israelis are arguing whether this should be called a pogrom or not a pogrom when it, at a minimum it's a, it was a murderous riot. Uh, then an, a, a, an American Israeli is killed. And Netanyahu... Uh, is uh, simply saying uh, before he retracted it that the protesters and there are hundreds of thousands of them every week now from all over the country protesting the Supreme Court uh, law, which has now passed, uh, which has uh, passed its first reading in the parliament. He said, well, Huara was uh, just like the protesters, no difference. Uh, and that sort of thing simply inflames Americans more. And we finally uh, or rather uh, have now uh, begun to come to terms with what this all means because Bitsala Smutrik, who is the finance minister, but also uh, a minister in the defense ministry who basically whitewashed all what the people, uh, the extremists did in Hawara and essentially said the best thing would be, of course, if the Arabs were to go. He's coming to the United States to speak to a Jewish organization and the White House just put out no one is going to speak to him, including our Treasury Department. Now, right. for a minister of finance not to be able to speak to the secretary or deputy secretary of the Treasury is just unheard of. And it just comes to show you that the split between the United States and Israel is not getting better. It's getting worse. Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Hope you all have uh, a great uh, weekend, a great week, and look forward to having you guys back again next week. We're uh, Hopefully, we're going to discuss the budget that will be on uh, on March uh, the 9th. Uh, and before we go, I would like to dedicate this program uh, to my good friend, Svi Rome, who sadly passed away days ago after a courageous five-year battle with cancer. He was one of the finest people I've ever known, a devoted husband to my dear friend, Barbara Rome, one of the finest reporters covering national security anywhere on the planet, father to four wonderful children, and a man who made everyone he touched better through his wisdom, his example, his kindness, and his genuinely inspirational spirituality. He will be deeply missed, and his memory will truly be a blessing. Thanks very much for joining us. Hope everybody has a great weekend, and look forward to having you guys join us on Sunday. Thanks very much.